Let's open our Bibles this morning to the first epistle that Paul wrote to Timothy. First Timothy, we're in the final chapter, chapter 6. Remember, Timothy is the young pastor who's ministering to the newly formed church at Ephesus. And we have been referring to this book as a manual for the church. As we come to this last chapter, there are several helpful words of instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy. And as I read them, I, I sense they're as relevant today in our lifetime as they were in the first century. Genuine Christianity will affect every part of our lives. And in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 6, Paul covers three important areas of Christian living. He writes about first being respectful at work, verses 1 and 2. Is that not crucial today? In verses 3 through 5, he writes about being separated from wrong theology. Again, that ticks the box. That's what people are facing today. And then being content in God's provisions, verses 6 through 10. So the title of the message this morning, Practical Words for Christian Living. 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 10. Let me just read verse 1, and then I'm going to go to another passage. It says in verse 1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Now Paul had already written to the church at Ephesus about the servant's responsibility to his master. Listen to what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers. I can't help but think about the imagery of a, of a, a gym class in, in high school or junior high, where the, the teacher stands up in front and he says, okay, everybody down in the push-up position and we're going to do push-ups. And he'll say, one, two, three, and everybody's doing their push-ups. And then he looks to the right, and he notices out of the corner of his eye that everybody on the left is in the hold position while he's watching them as he counts off. And then he'll, he'll look to the left, and they start doing their push-ups, and everybody on the right stops. And that's what eye service as men-pleasers is. <laughs> it's only when someone's looking. And so Paul is warning about that even in the, uh, as he wrote this letter before. Not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So here... These verses in Ephesians, written probably four years before he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Why does he have to repeat that? Well, this is a lesson that needs to be repeated. Paul has already told us this. We've heard this. And I've heard people go out of the church service and you know, I, I've heard that passage before. Or didn't we just hear about that? Now, let's move on. But Paul says, no, something needs to be reiterated. In fact, in our Bible reading for today, Isaiah chapter 28, there were two verses there that repeated an interesting, interesting way it's presented because it repeats with those words, line upon line, precept upon precept. That's the way God's word is to be taught. And so that's why it's important to reiterate these truths. So those under the yoke, 
are to honor their masters. And because of the way verse 2 starts out, I believe he's talking about unbelieving masters or unbelieving employers in this first verse. Let's look at some of the vocabulary. Let as many servants as are under the yoke. The word servant is doulos. It shows that this person is a slave. Either he was indentured into slavery or he, is, he has chosen to be a slave. It's either voluntary or involuntary that, that that word is used. But he's a slave. Now let me remind, remind you, in the first century, slaves were a normal part of the Roman Empire. In fact, almost a third of the citizens of Rome were slaves. They were conquered uh, in surrounding countries. Those who were captured were brought back and put into service. They were considered a possession, and when they had children, those children would be born into slavery and they would automatically become slaves. So by now, most of the slaves had been born into slavery. Some say that there were probably 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Records show that they were usually treated better than those who were considered free men. Uh, the free men had no guarantee of work. They often slept in the, in the streets. Slaves, on the other hand, often held prestigious jobs. They were doctors, accountants, musicians, teachers. Uh, they could save enough to purchase their own freedom, or that freedom often happened when the, the master died, they would be set free. So that's, what he, that's whom he's talking about, the word servant there. Now we have that, that phrase, under the yoke. It refers to a person who's employed in some kind of task. The yoke gives the idea that this is hard labor that's being done. It's a picture of work. It's the beam with the neck brace that makes it possible for a farm animal to pull a, a plow through the soil or pull a, a cart to, into town with, with some uh, wagon load of vegetables. There, there's another word here that we need to define, and that's word, the word honor. How are we to respond to the master Honor. Count their own masters worthy of all honor. The word originates for uh, money that is spent or paid for something valuable. And so it's something that would be held in high esteem. Be careful with that. We spent a lot of money on that. So to honor a person what, what meant that you showed them respect. You, showed, you esteemed them highly. Let me just stop and ask, does that does that describe the way you feel about the boss for whom you've worked this last week? Don't get involved in part of the conversation around the water cooler where it's easy to do. Someone says something as, as a, boy, this, went, this didn't go well, and all of a sudden there are complaints about how things are done. It's, it's a normal human tendency to want to speak out against authority, to complain about rules, to, to argue about some of the regulations that are in place. You don't have to agree about everything that goes on in your workplace, but there should be an attitude that a Christian worker has that's radically different than everybody else at, at, the, at the workplace. The unbeliever. We ought to honor our masters even if they're unsaved. What are the results of that kind of attitude in the workplace, this honor that's shown? Notice the, the result, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. The word blasphemed means to speak against, to speak evil of, or to defame. So when we complain about 
our boss, we open the door for others to speak evil of, of God and of his word, his truth, the Bible, his doctrine. On the other hand, if you show respect and honor your unsaved boss, you remove that opportunity for them to blaspheme God and his truth. Now again, as we read this in the context of first century Christianity and then put it as a template over what's going on today, I think this admonition to honor masters it certainly has the applicability in our culture, in our workplace. Many of you work for unsaved employers. And as long as you work for them, you have that Christian responsibility to show them honor. Now, if you're asked something that violates your, what God has told you to do, you can't, as a believer, go ahead and go through with that. You have the option of looking for another job. And I hope you can give a good testimony as you leave that place but will you offer any evidence that faith in Christ makes a difference? Don't give them any opportunity to speak evil of the Lord. How we work has a lasting impact on how others see the power of the gospel. Oh, he's a Christian. That's why he acted that way. I hope they can say that about, about us. Paul now addresses another possibility. Suppose you work for a, a person who is a Christian. What attitude are you to have in that case? Well, Christians who work for other Christians should still show honor, verse 2. And they that have believing masters, and I, th I think that's why verse 1 says, is talking about unbelieving. They that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. So suppose you have a Christian boss. You're not to despise them just because they're a brother in Christ. The tendency might be, well, since they're a Christian, we're all equal in God's sight. And so uh, I, 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 there's going to be a little, I can, I can slack off a little bit. After all, I see this person, maybe you go to church with them. Maybe you're the Sunday school teacher and they're in your class. It could work that way. You, you might serve together uh, in, in going on visitation or whatever. But in the workplace, you should have that same sense of honor, respect that you would have for the unsaved boss in verse 1. The wording here is, don't despise him. And that's literally, the word despise is to think against him. Is there anything in your mind that as soon as that boss comes in, you, you have this negative thought, uh, thinking against him? Don't do that, but rather, it says, do them service. So despising your boss is going to affect your job performance. And this is talking about a boss who's a believer. Notice it says they are faithful. Both master and worker should be faithful. They should show up to work on time. They should do the best that they can to, to be honest in their labor, to receive fair payment for that labor. They should be faithful in their, in their integrity as they do their work. And so if you work for a Christian, both of you should work the best that you can for the glory of God. It says here also that they are partakers of the benefit. It's not clear in the words of the text whether it's talking about the boss or the employee who shares in the benefit. It's probably ambiguous so that we can apply it to both. And I think that's what's happening here. Um, be respectful to your authorities at work. Another practical application of Christian work is given in, of the Christian life is given in verses 3 through 5. 
And here a Christian should be separate from false teachers. The phrase at the end of verse 2 probably goes with the next paragraph. These things teach and exhort. Because of that next phrase, if any man teach otherwise. So if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Paul tells Timothy that these things must be passed on to others. He uses those two words at the end of verse 2, teach and exhort, to show how that's to be done. To teach is to consistently give out the truth so that others can learn and respond correctly to that truth. Teach. And then he says exhort. That's the word we often see in our Bibles as translated comfort. It's to bring someone alongside of you, to call them to the truth. So these things, Timothy is being told by Paul to teach, have that consistent educational practice so that people will learn and respond to the truth, and then exhort Not only teach, this is what you need to do, but say, let me help you. Let's do it together. Teach and exhort. Then the admonition about other teachers. If any man teach otherwise. Any man. Nobody's excluded from being examined about their curriculum, about their doctrinal beliefs when it comes to false teaching. What's the test of of false doctrine? If any man teach otherwise. Other than what? Other than the things that... Paul has been teaching what he's preached, what he's written in the scriptures. False teaching is described in verse 3. His teaching is not wholesome or sound. Uh, the wholesome words, our word uh, hygienic um, comes from this Greek word for wholesome. They're words that are safe. They're words that are healthy, that are sound. Have you ever gone into a restaurant and been seated by the kitchen? And you say, the, the door swings open and you take one look in there and say, you know, I just lost my appetite. Uh, have you ever had that experience? We're really careful about expecting clean food, but why don't we expect, expect clean truth to be taught? When we hear things, uh, we want to be, be listening to wholesome words, healthy words. And then he goes further to say, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the litmus test, isn't it? Healthy words, sound words are the words that Jesus spoke. It's his word, the Bible. This teaching is not according to godliness. Any teaching that you get that doesn't encourage you to be more like Christ is dangerous teaching. False teaching, uh, the the teachers here are described in the first part of verse 4. It says they are proud. The word actually means they're inflated. They're they're inflated with self-conceit. They are, secondly, without knowledge. They they have no real comprehension and understanding of truth. They're just using words without knowledge. 
and then doting about questions and strifes of words, always involved in word battles. Guthrie says it means having an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. You ever get into false teaching arguments like that? And they like to twist the words around. Well, you know, the Bible says a day can mean a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. So it didn't really take seven literal days or six literal days for creation. It could have been thousands of years. Or let's redefine the word sin. Can't we just say that we don't do that anymore, that we just make mistakes? Well, let's argue over words. Let's, let's take out that word, especially, I, I'm averse, I don't like that word, uh, eternal destruction. Let's, let's just think maybe it's an age. And maybe there will be an end of that age where everybody gets a second chance. And that's called restoration theology. And it's being preached today. Battles about words. False teachers love to argue about words. These words are fought by men who have corrupt minds. This is what scripture says. They are destitute of the truth. What's the end result of that wrong teaching? Second half of verse 4 and the first of verse 5. Whereof cometh, from those false teachings, come envy, that's jealousy, strife. Uh, Strife is the next one, contentions or quarrels. Railings, those are words that are hurtful. They've been railed at you. They've been flung at you, and they hurt. Evil surmisings, suspicions that are brought up. Perverse disputings of men who are totally corrupt in their minds and destitute of the truth. Here are the descriptions of people who are outside the grace of God. They are false teachers. They believe that godliness is for gain. They put on this fake front and appear to be godly to everybody else, appear to be spiritual. Why? They have an intent to gain money by that. But they found that the more that they got, the less they, uh, they were content. And Paul lived just the opposite. He said in Acts 20, 33, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. And the action to be taken in verse 5, remember the if that we, that we first read about? Here's the then, okay? From such, withdraw thyself. If any, then this is the way you're to respond. Withdraw thyself. Literally means to stand apart from them. It's what Paul wrote also in Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Mark. Carefully look at that and then avoid. Get out of their way. Don't go to their churches. Don't buy their books. Don't watch them on YouTube. Don't hit, uh, share the link with someone else. Avoid them. From such, withdraw thyself. Stand apart. That's, that's what separation is all about. Separation from false teachers. Very practical word of instruction for Christian living in our day. The third is found in verses 6 through 10. And here a Christian should be content with all that God provides. This may be the hardest. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us 
be con therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Godliness is contentment and bringing great gain. There's a natural flow from what Paul has just been saying about false teachers who put on that fake religiosity for money. False teachers tried to pretend to be godliness for gain in order to get rich. In contrast, true godliness brings contentment. You trust in Christ. You focus on him and you realize that you have everything you need. A truly godly person is not content because of the material possessions that he has. A truly God, godly person is always content, whether he has a lot, whether he has little. He sits down at his meager meal in his humble home, and he says, What gain! How God has blessed me! All that I have, all that I need, is found in a person. It's Jesus Christ. And in having him, you have everything that you need. You'll never be content if you're not godly. Godliness is contentment with great gain. How much does a man need? Material possessions don't bring contentment. Verse 7, we didn't come into this world with anything. We don't take anything when we leave. The only way to take anything with you for eternity is to send it on ahead of you. Matthew 6 tells us how. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You don't start your life with things. You don't end it with things. And so how many things do we need in the middle of those two time periods? What do we need? The lesson is clear. Be content with the basics. And in verse 8, he tells us what those basics are. Food, raiment, clothing. That word clothing is, is actually a word that means covering, so it could be talking about shelter or a place to live. So have, have food, have clothing, have a place to stay. That's basically what our, our big needs are. When Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 32 and 33, He's talking about those same things. And he said, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. And he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seeking his kingdom on the way to finding joy in him, you'll discover that all of the things that you needed are provided. Seek first his kingdom. What are the dangers of desires for riches? Notice the word will there. They that will be rich. That is, they wake up in the morning thinking, how can I get rich today? How can I make more money today? And they'll end their day trapped with those unfulfilled desires of their hearts. What does a person desire 
for wealth, what, what does it bring? The person who wants to be rich falls into two traps, temptation and a snare. Let's just first talk about that word fall. It's a verb that's in the present tense, and it, it implies continual action. They keep falling into these traps. Those who want to be rich are living for wealth. Temptation is adversity, provocation to do wrong. That's something that you see. It's something that's, that's obvious. It's a temptation. It's set in front of you. You look at it. You make a decision. And then a snare. That talks about something else. That's something that someone sets. Satan can set that snare in front of you. And he knows what will catch you, what you're most likely to, to be drawn to. But it, the word means it's fastened by a noose or a notch. So it's something that's to catch you unaware. So they that want to be rich fall into these two tra traps, temptation, snares. He falls also into many foolish and hurtful lusts. There are many. They multiply, and the landscape of his life will be filled with these landmines. They're foolish and harmful. They drown men. It's a great Baptist word here. It's baptizo. <laughs> what does it mean? It means to plunge, to sink, to immerse. But here it's to sink into perdition, in, in destruction and ruin, perdition. I was reading an article several years ago by uh, Reuters um, News, and there was, a, there was a diver in Florida who was out spearfishing, and he shot a giant goliath. It's a kind of a sea bass. And they can weigh up to hundreds, 100 pounds. And this bass, the, the, the line to the, to, to the harpoon that he had shot this fish with, wrapped around his wrist. And he was pulled down 25 feet into that uh, coral area in Florida. And, and the, the, the fish found a hole in the coral and lodged there. And the, driver, the diver did not survive. That's the word here that I think of. Those who desire riches are plunged into ruin, plunged into destruction. Paul makes this categorical statement about materialism. The love of money is the root of all evil. And we know that it's often misquoted, money is the root of all evil. It's the love. It's the desire to have it. The root of all kinds of evil. When a man loves money, he will do all kinds of wrong things, criminal things, in order to try to get it. Notice which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. Some made the choice between God and mammon. They coveted money. The word covet there means to stretch oneself out for, to desire. It's a word that's used in Hebrews chapter 11, 6, when the author is writing about the heroes of the faith who stretched themselves out toward heaven. A true believer stretches for those kinds of things. But now they desire a better country, and that's the word. They desire a better country that is unheavenly, whereof God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city, and the thing that they stretched forth they are going to receive, an eternal home. What are you stretching for? A bigger paycheck or a better country? They have erred 
That word means to plane away from, to wander from the faith. They've drifted away from the faith. The love of money. They've inflicted themselves with many sorrows. Pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Guthrie calls these self-inflicted pangs of disillusionment. Remember the story of Gehazi? When he... He ran after Naaman when Naaman the leper had been cleansed. Elisha said, no, we don't need any pay. You just go, and then Naaman went, and he said, my master changed his mind. Maybe just one talent of silver, you offered more. Maybe just two garments would help. We've had, we've had some visitors come in, and they, they probably need that. And Gehazi failed to see that what he would take from Naaman were not only those gifts, but also that leprosy that he had had. Elisha said, is it a time to receive money and receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? The leprosy thereof of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. These practical instructions for Timothy are appropriate for us to consider today. Are you respectful at work? Does your work allow others to speak evil or to speak well of God and his word? Are you separated from wrong theology? Are you able to identify false teachers and do you withdraw yourself from them? Are you content in Christ? Godliness with contentment is still great gain. May we seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And realize all these things will be added unto us. You might say, boy, you've been talking about the Christian life today. And it looks like a difficult one. I, I'm not, I don't even know if I'm a Christian or not. Well, that's where you start. You can never live the Christian life unless you first come to Christ and, and trust him as your Savior. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your goodness. We're thankful for these friends that we have in this place. Friends that will help us to be more like our Savior. I pray that you would help us to have a great compassion for each other and a compassion on those who, who are not here, who don't know you as Savior. I pray that you'd give us opportunities even this week to be witnesses for you. Now unto him that is able to keep us from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.